This is the 966, the podcast that covers all things Saudi from the two guys who produce the most widely read newsletter on the kingdom. Episode 24, Mabruk Richard. Thank you. Hi. Thanks to all of you for joining us today on the 966 Virtual Majlis. We're going to cover some interesting territory today, the PIF's new hotel company, a boom in natural gas production in Saudi Arabia, and much more. But before we jump in, thanks to everybody who subscribed wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, we're on YouTube. And I want to note really quickly, Richard, we get uh, we cover a lot this week on this podcast, every week on this podcast. So wherever you see it, you should see show notes at the bottom. Uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. They give you the exact timestamp to skip forward to each segment if there's one that interests you more than others. And on YouTube, each segment is broken down and published separately, along with videos and images that enhance the experience. So check that out. Um, okay, Richard, what's your one big thing this week? Yeah, uh, in terms of topics, on average, talking you know eight to twelve topics every episode, so mm-hmm. we we definitely get get after it. Uh, one big thing, uh, Ali Shahabi, who's a well-known Saudi media commentator and an author, he was also previously founder and head of the Arabia Foundation, based here in D.C. Um, currently a member of the advisory board for Neom. Uh, has written a nine-page essay called The Saudi Succession and the Sociocultural Religious Reforms of Mohammed bin Salman. It was published by the Hoover Institution. Uh, and it's worth a read. It's a really interesting take. Uh, we don't have time to summarize it here, but Shahabi's premise is, is this. Uh, he says a strong case can be made that what has taken place in Saudi Arabia since the appointment of Mohammed bin Salman as count, crown prince in 2017 is two back-to-back revolutions. One is a bloodless revision of the tradi- traditional royal generational succession. This is something we've talked about when we, t- when we discuss King Salman and the, his extraordinarily pivotal role. Uh, and the other is neutralizing the clerical establishment, which had been empowered to dominate culture, education, and the legal establishment, as well as heavily influenced the media and public discourse. And this is Shahabi. Uh, thus impacting the practice of Islam on both a local and even a global scale, a process similar to marginalizing the influence of the Catholic Church that took Europeans hundreds of years in religious wars to achieve. So uh, in the piece, and like, like I said, it's nine pages long, um, Shahabi elaborates on both these points, and he also addresses uh, criticism of the government, um, of the coercion that the government brought to bear to achieve both these goals. Um, and Shahabi you know, is seen as an, an interesting position, well-connected, uh, but he has tempted, attempted to sort of be an informed explainer, quote-unquote, to the West about Saudi Arabia, something we are very familiar with here at the 966. But I uh, wanted to bring this to, to viewers and listeners' attention. It's, it's an informative, interesting read and, and well-recommended, in my opinion. It, it was really good. Um, Shahibi was with the Arabia Foundation here, and they've since shuttered their doors. But he still writes and is very influential on Twitter and social media platforms. The piece is awesome. Um, I'm glad you made that your one big thing this week. Just it's it's worth a read. Yeah, is let it, me. I'm sorry. Please, sorry no, no, please. Um, David Rundell, who is going to be our special guest uh, in February, and looking forward to talking with David. Mm-hmm has written a book, Vision of Mirage, Saudi Arabia at the Crossroads, which is easily the best primer on Saudi Arabia that one can read. It really gives you an understanding of the foundations uh, of the country, uh, the current changes, and, and, and it's really, a ter- I w- would, couldn't recommend it more. And I look forward to talking with David. But he, in that book, he talks about balancing stakeholders, 
in Saudi Arabia, and, and he, he names five of them. He names the tribes, the clergy, the merchants, the technocrats, and the royal family. And, and not to be too specific, but you know, if you're if you're listening to Shahabi, Shahabi is saying that uh, you know MBS and King Salman, un, under the guidance or at least the authority of King Salman, has redirected two of those five balancing stakeholders. Basically, revised the whole. Uh, contract and the relationship uh, within the country. So uh, again, it's a it's an interesting read by Shahabi, and I'll be interested when we talk with David, what he th- what he thought of it. My one big thing this week, Richard, is Sa- Saudi palaces being converted into ultra lux hotels. The Saudi Public Investment Fund (PIF) has created a new company called the B- Boutique Group. The Boutique Group will co- will convert iconic, historic, and cultural palaces into luxurious boutique hotels in Saudi Arabia, and then manage them. So the boutique group is going to start this first phase with three palaces, two of which the Tuwake Palace and the Red Palace, they're both in Riyadh. And the third is the Alhamra Palace in Jeddah. This interests me for several reasons. It's been done around the world with former mansions of the ultra rich and certainly has happened in the estates of landed gentry in the UK and uh, in the United States, former plantations, gilded ages estates um, across the country have been converted into hotels. But this just feels like an opportunity being seized by the PIF to offer a hospitality experience that is unlike anything else in the world. I mean, more and more people are looking not just for places to stay, but places to stay and unique experiences. And we've seen that more and more with the rise of Airbnb and others. This has really become the norm. Um, And these buildings have historic cachet as well. The Red Palace, for example, is considered the first reinforced concrete building constructed in Riyadh City in 1944. So when you travel to Saudi Arabia, when you travel to Riyadh and Jeddah and wherever else they're putting up these hotels that used to be palaces, you're going to be able to say that you did something completely unique to Saudi Arabia. And that is, I stayed in a former palace and it was a luxury hotel and it was completely awesome and totally different than, you know, your your random average Holiday Inn or Marriott or whatever. I mean, this is a complete <laughs> unique experience, and that's what they're going for. I think the the PIF with this uh, with the boutique group just really interesting uh, move from them. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with the current hotel, uh, man- uh, sorry, palaces to be hotels that they're going to convert, and then also what other palaces they may be eyeing right now. Just just really interesting story. It is, and I think it's kind of curiously egalitarian you know yeah it's not quite it's not quite monticello on mount vernon but i mean as you say these places do have historical value I, um you know uh, king abdulaziz founder of the country built the red palace for his son saud uh, who was you know also became king um alhambra palace was built by saud for his brother prince faisal who then succeeded saud um, so they do have a historical significance, and it, and it's as is in keeping with what a lot of Saudi Arabia is doing is they're trying you know they're they're trying to emphasize and showcase cultural touchstones, and by the way monetize them. What the heck? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I, I you know it's a really curious and interesting play, and like you say, I think there'll be tremendous interest. Yeah. And I mean, this is something that has been done in Saudi Arabia before the Ritz Carlton Riyadh, um, just outside of Riyadh, was a former palace that had been converted um, and is now a Ritz Carlton. It is obviously where the famous crackdown on corruption would uh, took place. And Richard, you and I have both visited it. It's spectacular um, <laughs> and com- completely unique. Um, just wanted to add the Alhamra Palace will offer 77 keys, 33 luxury palace suites, and 44 luxury villas in Jeddah. Tuwake Palace will offer 96 keys, 40 luxury palace suites, and 56 luxury villas. 
And the Red Palace will offer 71 keys, 46 luxury suites, 25 luxury guest rooms. So it's definitely aimed at the luxury segment. Let's move on to our first topic, if you're ready, Richard. Um, Absolutely. Saudi Arabia is starting to see significant growth in its natural gas production. It's up 30% since 2010. This is according to the U.S. Energy Information Agency, the EIA. And I need to mention right now before continuing, we had a really great conversation on the podcast last week with Adam Siminski. He was the former head of the EIA. Um, so check that out. Um, anyway, what is significant about Saudi Arabia ramping up gas output is not the increase itself, but the type of increase it is seeing and why. There are two types of natural gas production in Saudi Arabia, that which is associated with oil production and standalone gas production. Saudi Arabia began producing gas associated with oil in the 70s, but as of the year 2000, it had zero standalone production. So fast forward to 2016, and you have one of the most influential contemporary multinational organizations formed, which is OPEC in Russia, creating what is called OPEC Plus. And in one of the first meetings of OPEC Plus, December 2016, the group came to an agreement in which Saudi Arabia agreed to slash oil production. When that happened, the amount of natural gas being produced by Saudi Arabia's associated gas fields dropped, but Saudi Arabia's overall natural gas production increased. The why, of course, is because Saudi Arabia poured big money into developing these fields. Richard, this is a really interesting piece from Sustig and the EI, based on EIA data. Um, it's really it's really cool to see this. I mean, this is like the the fruits being born from from their investment into non-associated gas production, which is helping their economy right now. First of all, let me compliment you. That's a really good scene, Senator. That was oh, nice context. You. It happens every now and then. <laughs> well done. <laughs> yeah, uh, the non-associated gas in 2015 for Saudi Arabia was 70% of their, their total natural gas mix, as you say. And today it's 46%, so almost 50%. Um, and so it, it is, it is uh, a critical distinction to be able to control, uh, to separate those two and have access to non-associated gas so you can toggle you know, crude exports and production uh, separate from what you need. We've talked r repeatedly about the Saudi Arabia's fuel energy mix, and, and I find it fascinating. And I find, uh, as I've mentioned before, I find natural gas to be sort of a hinge fuel for them. Um, when we talked with uh, Adam Smisky last week, he, he for us, he reviewed the... Um, the sort of fundamentals of their circular carbon economy. And he went through, he said, you know, re there, there's, there's separate parts, there's separate applications. There's reduce, there's recycle, reuse, remove, and then uh, cross-cutting, which is uh, something that goes, can evolve any, uh, any number of those aspects of uh, carbon capture and the circular carbon economy. Natural gas falls into four of those. And at first it's, you know, reduce, you know, the more natural gas they produce, uh, the less crude they can burn. They need to burn for power needs. So it's fuel switching, which is critical. It's, it's not only critical for their, their local energy mix, but it's critical for their climate and, um, and emissions goals. Um, on reuse, uh, the whole thing about what they're doing in Jafura, which is a, a shale play, is uh, it's going to be carbon capture and utilization. So, uh, you know, that's going to be where they're really going to go hard at trying to uh, apply these carbon capture technologies. Again, remove, same thing, carbon capture and storage. Saudi Arabia has tremendous geological advantages in terms of storage. So this natural gas, uh, you know, whatever carbon capture, carbon they, they don't use, they can remove and store. And then there's cross-cutting, you know, quote-unquote, and that's hydrogen. And and uh, specifically blue hydrogen, which is what uh, natural gas is going to be used from Jafura to try and 
develop an industry there. So it, it's to me, it's kind of a hinge fuel mm-hmm. as they try and reduce their emissions, as well as um, generate a technology hub with regard to carbon capture and hydrogen. And uh, it's fascinating. And I would add to this, and I think this is probably a poor analogy, but I sort of see Saudi Arabia at the moment is, in, with regard to their energy mix, is a is a very savvy investor, and you sort of you sort of have you have you know in, in they have several modes. One is a blue chip investor, so they have oil and traditional oil and traditional natural gas, and we know that they're they're increasing their production capacity of crude from 12 to 13 million barrels a day. So you know pumping in a lot of money for that. So so you've got that blue chip investor that's going after uh, you know. Uh, industries and sectors that have significant market share, proven sector expertise, long-term investment pipelines, you know, established infrastructure and supply chains, so specifically crude oil and and, and traditional natural gas. Then you've sort of got the crowd investor or the index investor, so renewables, solar, wind, and nuclear. These are all technologies that exist, um, but uh, Saudi Arabia is trying to bring them to scale in the kingdom. Uh, and we talked about this with Adam in terms of solar. They've got four gigawatts online. They want to reach four gigawatts by the end of 2022. They have targeted 20 gigawatts by 2023, which is, you know, will be a, a, a strong play if they can get it. Adam pointed out, he, he said, look, especially in terms of renewables, um, it's not necessarily going to be linear. Once you get rolling on this, it could be exponential and they could reach their target of 40 gigawatts by 2030. Um, but you know you can so you look at the you, know, you look at that as as a, you know a crowd investor. This is a known technology that they, they, they they're trying to bring to Saudi Arabia. Then you have sort of a venture capital investor, which would be a technology that's new to Saudi Saudi Arabia or, or within markets that aren't fully established. The market share is to be determined. The Jafura play, you know, that shale gas is at deeper deeper um, at greater depths than what's you know, 3,000 feet in, in Permian and in U.S. shale. It's talking six to 9,000 feet. They'll be using seawater. So it's it's a known technology, but it's being applied in Saudi Arabia. So that's sort of a, a little more risky than crowd investing or blue chip investing. And then you have what might be called a seed capitalist, which is not exact, but that would be the carbon t- uh, capture technology um, on a large scale, which is has not been proved to be uh, you know, successfully scalable or economic yet, uh, and, and in addition, you have green hydrogen. So these are these are, you know, still early in technology learning curve, not proven to scale, not proven economically. So you've got Saudi Arabia in terms of their energy mix, investing at all levels and in all types, with all levels of risk, and I think it's a great play. I think it's an aggressive and smart play to sort of sort of not only strengthen what you know, but uh, go and try and build what, what might be coming down the line. Yeah, and we should note that um, the kingdom is the seventh largest global consumer of natural gas. And so for them to produce um, all the natural gas that they consume, they neither export nor import natural gas. They just are big consumers of natural gas and they produce what they need. And that may change going forward as these new production uh, streams come online, uh, like you mentioned, Jafura and others. And by the way, most of that's offshore, so it's more expensive. So once again, Saudi Arabia has made a decision to spend money to make money and to mm-hmm. to put position themselves uh, 
advantageously. And, and again, once again, that, that differentiates them from so many other oil, fossil fuel producers and exporters. You know, they put in the time and money to, to build their industry. And uh, that Jafuro gas field, once it comes on, it starts, I think, in 2027, you know, full, actually, maybe a little earlier than that, but, uh, you know. I think it was 2025, but yeah, a few uh, years. Yeah, you know, hoping to get 2 trillion cubic feet a day, uh, adding uh, by 2030, um, that'll, that'll put the kingdom third in the world in natural gas production. But let me add one more thing is, so th- they're doing all these. They started on the natural gas production uh, you know, trying to expand it and the non-associated back in 2000 when they had n- zero non-associated. Now it's f- almost 50% of the mix. But uh, that capacity build enables them to do things like what they've just done, which is they're working with the rock to try and uh, get some natural gas. There's a, there's a GCC pipeline uh, network, pipeline network. So you can get, you can get uh, natural gas from Saudi Arabia to all the GCC states. You can get natural gas from... Uh, Saudi Arabia to Iraq via Kuwait because they're connected and um, they're talking with them about offsetting uh, supplies from Iran. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, this is a political plus for Saudi, you'd be looking at from Saudi Arabia and probably from Iraq too, you know, you know that it, it eliminates a dependence there and also uh, the natural gas supplies that create electricity for Iraq from Iran are intermittent and not always reliable. So anyway, it, it's, it creates a number of goods, positives, uh, in addition to just expanding output ca- capability. With that, are you ready? We can move on to Yella, and this will be one of our most efficient episodes of all time. Um, I'm loving it. All right. Uh, Thailand and Saudi Arabia agreed to restore full di- diplomatic relations for the first time in more than three decades following the Thai prime minister's recent visit, well, visit to Riyadh this week. Uh, his visit was the first by a Thai leader since since ties were severed due to a jewelry heist in 1989 and subsequent murder of three Saudi diplomats in what is known as the Blue Diamond Affair. That is an amazing um, story, a very sad story, but a really incredible story that seems like it was written, um, you know, for TV. For, for TV. Yeah. yeah. Um, so if you are not familiar with that, check it out. But this is good. Um, this is good that they're. That that's a long time for you know for relations to be soured between two countries over that. So this is good, I think. Well, um, yeah, and it's it, it's been a it's been an unfortunate thing, and I know Thailand is quite excited about it. I mean, not only because of the, you know they've missed out on thirty plus years of uh, remittances from Thai uh, you know Thais working in Saudi mm-hmm. Arabia, and of course all the trade trade uh, that has been lost over that year. I know they're excited about picking up rice exports to Saudi Arabia, and uh, it, it is good. But that was a, a sordid and protracted affair. You had, you know, three diplomats killed in Thailand on the, on the same night, separate mm-hmm. assassinations. You had a Saudi businessman who was tracking this and trying to figure it out, was disappeared one month later. Nobody's ever figured that out. Um, you had you had you know the jewels supposedly returned, but they turned out to be fake. Um, it, it was uh, <laughs> quite 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 sorted. the story, yeah, <laughs> quite sorted. Um, topic number two: the Saudi General Authority for Statistics reported that non-oil exports in November 2021 totaled 6.9 billion dollars, up from 5.5 billion dollars in November 2020. That's an increase of 26.1 percent. 
Non-oil exports also increased 9% from October to, to, to November 2021. Well, this is it, isn't it? Mm -hmm. This is what they're after, Vision 2030. I sent this, uh, this was in an Al Monitor article, among other things. I sent that to our friend uh, Abdurrahman Al-Harbi, who's the governor of the General Authority of Foreign Trade in Saudi Arabia, is working extremely hard to do exactly this. Yep. And uh, so kudos to him, kudos to Saudi Arabia in trying to build this non-oil export sector. It seems to be uh, proving to be a little bit more difficult than it, you know, was maybe seemed on the face of it when they were really starting to announce this in 2016 with Vision 2030. It seems like it's really starting to get some traction, which is great to see. Um, completely agree. Yeah, these things take time, don't they? Yeah, they sure do. Uh, but it's uh, happening. Yeah, it is. Um, number three, the Modern Times Group has officially sold its eSports tournament organizer, ESL, to Savvy Gaming Group, which is owned by Saudi Arabia's public investment fund, PIF, P-I-F. A company has also picked up Face It, which is which means that two of the biggest tournament organizers in esports will be changing hands and merging for a reported one point five billion dollars. Yes, this is awesome, and I just saw the PIF announced a new group um, in the esports business. Um, trying to pull up the name of it right now. I think um, that's the Savvy Gaming Group. Is it the Savvy Gaming? Oh, excuse me. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, that's that's really cool. I mean, this is a huge space, and I think this is going to be a big deal in the next few years as these things really go mainstream, along with all of the investments going into the metaverse. And um, you saw that the PIF invested in Activision when the, before, yeah. before the stock <laughs> tanked, and then Microsoft <laughs> came along and bought it out and made the PIF whole, and then, and then some. Just yeah. an interesting space. I'm not into into online gaming or Twitch or anything like that. But um, a lot of Saudis are and these they're holding a lot more events in this space in the kingdom. So it's a, it's an area they're looking to develop locally. And that's very cool to see. I guess Saudi Arabia is currently home to 23.5 million gaming enthusiasts, which is about 60% of the population, according to a Boston consulting group report. 90% of the gamers, about 21.1 million, already play eSport titles on a semi-pro or amateur basis with 100 professional eSports players pursuing this as a full-time career. Absolutely, you're right. I mean, eSports has boomed in Saudi Arabia. And this purchase, this move by the Savvy Gaming Group, PIF, you know, uh, to sort of roll up these two uh, gaming businesses, it, it, you know, so much of how we see Saudi Arabia and what they're trying to do in terms of sports and culture and that sort of thing, I just find we end up with a complete failure of imagination because they just went out and did this. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, you know, and they're, you know, they see an esports universe and uh, ecosystem in Saudi Arabia. It's popular. It's so they go out and, and they'll and they'll get platforms that help promote it. And, and they see esports as participatory participation things and and outlets. Uh, so again, like so many of their their significant external investments, it has a tie back into Saudi society and what the youth find interesting. Um, number four, Elm, a digital security firm owned by Saudi Arabia's sovereign wealth fund, is seeking to raise as much as eight hundred twenty million from an IPO. Digital security is another industry in Saudi Arabia. We're, we're actually just getting blue in the face here talking about all of these new industries developing. But um, digital se security is huge. And this is a could be a big deal for the PIF. Agreed. And uh, PIF, 
you know, doing its thing again. You know, they have this company. It's been around uh, for some time, since 88. Uh, and they're going to, you know, put it out there in IPO so other people can invest. I think it's about, set about $30. Like you say, you're going to raise about 820000000 million, 30% of the company. Um, PIF is getting, making this habit. And uh, it's going to be interesting how, this all evolves over over the next the coming period where PIF you know sort of has a major hand or a complete control of so many companies, so many initiatives in so many sectors, and they're looking to divest in ways that that bring in not only Saudi individual investors, institutional investors, but you know private sector. So uh, this is another example of them, you know, trying to move along that path. Agreed. Um, Five, uh, Lebanon's leading Saudi Sunni Muslim <laughs> Sunni Muslim politician Saad Al Hariri said on Monday he would not run in a forthcoming parliamentary election, and was suspending his role in political life, urging his political party, the Future Movement, to do the same. One of the more interesting men currently living, Saad Al Hariri. Um, you know, his father was murdered in an assassination in Lebanon. Um, he's always been he's born he was born in Saudi Arabia he's always been very close to Saudi Arabia um, has always had a good relationship with the Saudi government um, of course he did briefly and this is gets really fuzzy but he did you know claim uh, that he was you know held without um, you know his consent in Saudi Arabia and there was a, there was a lot of weird stuff going on around that time um, and he has since reappeared in Saudi Arabia um, since his quote-unquote kidnapping um, on the stage at the Future Investment Initiative alongside Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, um, who joked about the incident. Just, um, we, you know, we've, we've wanted to talk about Lebanon a lot on this podcast, Richard. We haven't because it is not just a thorny and complex issue, but it's also a sad situation. And um, yeah, this is not a good thing um, for Lebanon. Well, I guess he, you know, he, he's got Saudi citizenship as well as Lebanese citizenship. He mm -hmm. was prime minister of Lebanon from 2009 to 2011 and, and also from 2016 to 2020. And as you say, the, the, the son of Rafiq Hariri, who was legendary mm -hmm. in Lebanese politics. Um, yeah, it is sad. It's very hard to get it to. Lebanese, mostly the Lebanese governing system is broken. Um, Saad Hariri is part of this, and, and it's not necessarily his fault, but uh, what we're seeing, I think, and as a little bit as in Iraq, um, is that uh, sectarian coalition systems or governments based on sectarian uh, divisions frequently, and in Lebanon as a case, has resulted in, in graft and corruption and uh, dysfunction and basically a pursuit of gain for each sec sectarian community at the expense of the nation. So you end up with, with public bankruptcy, crumbling social service services, violence. Um, so Saad Hariri was, you know, part of this system. And it, it's, it's hard to, you know, you can't really place blame, but the system itself is is seen by many uh, Lebanese. And, and the system in Iraq is seen, seen by many Iraqis as untenable and mm -hmm. not serving as the national interest. And you see Muqtada uh, al-Sadr, in Iraq, trying to reach beyond some of these sectarian divides, yet the, the the framework and the governing, how it's constructed, makes it very difficult to do so. But certainly, in in 
in Lebanon, uh, the political framework has been a disaster. And you can see, you can see the motivation for the framework. Uh, you know, s Lebanon had a had a devastating civil war, 15-year civil war from 1975 to 1990. Uh, so, you know, trying to broker that peace. Uh, required some uh, recognition of the sectarian divides, but what happens is, is, is that accord sort of guaranteed power sharing through religious institutions. So you have 11 officially recognized sects in, in Lebanon, and each of these get a piece of something. Mm -hmm. And inevitably, you know, the, the, whoever is in charge of that sect, or, you know, and it, it, you know, their job is to get their piece, to make sure they get, you know, they provide for their, their group, and um, the national interest goes begging. And we see that in Lebanon. And it's been a disaster. And then you introduce Hezbollah, which is easily the most organized, easily the most powerful, easily the best armed. And everything gets distorted. In fact, you know, with, we return to Saad Hariri. Um, and, you know, f from 2005 to 2013, uh, two years of which, three years of which, which he was prime minister. Hezbollah assassinated nearly a dozen of his political allies. And, uh, you know, they at one point, you know, shot up his house in Beirut. So, you know, you had this, this added element of Hezbollah inside this flawed sectarian uh, framework, and we see where Lebanon is today, which is extraordinarily sad. And I might add, um, it's especially painful to a generation of Saudis um, mm -hmm. uh, the younger Saudis don't really identify so much with Lebanon, but there's a generation of, of Saudis where Lebanon in the, in the 60s and 70s um, was sort of a beacon of liberal openness. And they would vacation there, they would eat well there, they would buy property there. And there was a, a real sense of unity, and it breaks a lot of Saudis' hearts to see what's happening. And, and it's unfortunate, I think, because... When you see uh, Saudi Arabia react to this George Kodahi's uh, comment, you know, who was Minister of Information for a bit and then stepped down, and he criticized Saudi Arabia and Yemen, and, and Saudi Arabia reacted strongly. And, of course, it makes it look like Saudi Arabia is petty and this sort of thing. And, and it, it's so much more than that. I mean, you know, Saudi Arabia has pumped in billions and billions of dollars, and, they, you know, the decision is that, look, what's the point? Um, it's a corrupt system uh, uh, controlled primarily by Hezbollah, which is partnered with Iran, funded by Iran. You know, why, are we, why do we keep, you know, pouring money down this sinkhole? Um, is there a better way? So, you know, the, the Kordahi statement was sort of the tip of the iceberg. There's real problems all the way through. And I know, mo I know Saudi Arabia doesn't want to see Lebanon fail, but it's hard to get a foothold to help it when the system is so broken and so monopolized by one specific, very anti-Saudi party, Hezbollah. Mm -hmm. Number six, we're going to finish on a much more positive note. The Saudi cabinet just met for the first time in person since the COVID era began, and it was chaired uh, himself by King Salman. This is cool. There's This was the sort of the situation, and we, you and I see it, Richard, we're, we're up to our eyebrows every day in Saudi news. And this is the type of stuff where conclusions are easily drawn by media outlets. I mean, outlets like Business Insider would say, okay, the Saudi king has been in Neom or is not in Riyadh. And, you know, due to the pandemic, he's been away. And so that, you know, is the type of thing that 
media outlets can then use to draw conclusions about what's going on. I mean, is is King Salman okay? You know, he's been chairing these cabinet sessions virtually. So this is a big deal because it's like, oh, you know, it was really just the COVID era. Um, they were doing these things digitally and now they're back. And King Salman himself was there. So was Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. We'll show the photos now for those of uh, who are watching on YouTube and they were on the Saudi press agency. But it's, it's good. To, it's just good to see this. Um, you know, I mean, I think we all want to get back together again soon here. Um, <laughs> we want the COVID era to, to be over. So there was something kind of heartening in this. I agree. It, that is a nice story. Nice to see, see King Salman there. And uh, it, it's also a reminder of how serious Saudi Arabia is taking this. Because mm-hmm. this week also, 3.5 million students returned to school in over 13,000. This is on Sunday. 13,000 primary schools and 4,800 kindergartens. First time back in two years mm-hmm. in 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 class learning because Saudi Arabia was you know had been very strict and uh, about you know its its COVID response and um, and so you see that obviously the cabinet not meeting for two years trying to protect people uh, I might also add I, I thought it was interesting and again this is part of the Saudi effort. Um, they, part of the part of the immunization effort was they uh, introduced this Tawakalna application for anyone who's anyone. So you, in order to get into a place, you have to your smartphone. Uh, you know the six that most Saudis have on one of them at least. You have to have, you know this, this that you your vaccinated status is up to date, and they just sent out a note that says, look, your your booster if you're over 18. This is on the Tawakalna application. If your booster over 18. If you're over 18, you need to get your booster, your second dose of COVID-19, your third, rather, your third, uh, because it's been eight months since you got your first one, I mean, your second one. So, sorry. So, basically, what it is is they've been so diligent, so organized, that they can, you know, set on a collective, an app that everyone has and everyone uses to say, all right, you, you, you know, by February 1, you need to get your booster. Uh, it's it's been a well organized and well um, implemented uh, approach to trying to manage this COVID uh, COVID pandemic. That's a really good point. I mean, we've talked before about how they're sort of the envy of the world when it comes to managing COVID, and part of it is because of what they've done, and also part of it is because of what they're capable of doing as um, you know the type of government they have. But that is very interesting because that's like. You know, it's not just a verification for you to say, okay, I can go into the restaurant because I've been vaccinated and boosted. It's a little bit of handholding for people that are not as attuned to it and, you know, have both shots and think that's it because they don't pay that close of attention. Getting a notification saying, oh, you need to get your booster now. I mean, I'm jealous of that situation. It would be great to be where they are. Um, And so... Well, and, um, sorry to interrupt you, but, please. you know, and it's absolutely a decision to be out of school, to hold your kids, at, you know, do online virtual learning for two years, 20, you know, 22 years. And you, a lot of parents were very upset about this. It, it rearranged a lot of lives and people, you know, and one of the, one of the uh, impacts was women, you know, quitting their jobs in order to, you know, help kids at home. So it had, it had, you know, nothing's ever clean, nothing's ever universally praised. Um, and... I think, you know, a lot of uh, effort is putting into the psychological impacts of these young kids. And by the way, these are just these are elementary and primary, you know, kindergarten and and elementary. So up to 12 years old. Other older kids were back in school earlier. Um, 
So, but you know, they're spending a lot of time in sort of reacclimating these kids into school and that sort of thing. But uh, it's a decision that was made. It was a decision universally applied, and it's been a decision that's helped control the pandemic. Uh, and like you say, it's kind of it's kind of nice to see a situation where it hasn't been, become political. Of course, it wouldn't be allowed to become political, but it's been an effective response. And it's nice to see after two years, not only Ken Salma meeting with the cabinet, but also the young kids going back to school. When you follow Saudi Arabia for as long and as deeply as we have, Richard, you learn that the rumors that be, are being peddled are almost always inaccurate. And you learn to immediately look at the source of those rumors and say, what do you possibly know? The ultimate in Kremlinology. So, well, um, you know, a, 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 a very senior Saudi lawyer, someone who's a good friend of mine and someone I respect, used to always say, um, about Saudi politics. He used to say, those who know don't say, those who say don't know. <laughs> That's perfect. <laughs> very true. And I think with that, let's put a bow on it. Richard, thank you very much. If you are um, listening to us now for the first time, um, and we really love seeing our, our listenership grow, hit the subscribe button uh, or the follow button. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook now as well. Um, Richard, thanks again very much. Excellent. Thank you.